Welcome to Everything Scary. My name is Lynn, and I'm here with my sister Haley. My interests consist of everything true crime, but Haley, not so much. She signed on here to be with me and let me hurl true crime facts at her. And every week, my goal is for her not to walk out on me. I hope you like what you hear, and if so, please leave a five-star rating. And if you don't, thank you for your time. Here we go. Hi, everybody. I'm Lynn. I'm Haley. And this is Everything Scary. Today, we're going to talk about the case of Scott Perk. My sources for this information were the Let's Go to Court podcast, uh, Dateline NBC, which was called Secrets from the Grave, the BeaconJournal.com, the DailyMail.com, and Cleveland.com. So this is a wild one. I originally heard it on the Let's Go to Court podcast, and the title of the episode was something along the lines of an arson, a ninja, and a burglar, and a murderer. So right out of the gate, they had me. And then I watched the Dateline NBC on it, and it was a very sad case, but it's also very interesting. So here's how it all plays out. In March of 1985, in Akron, Arizona, Meg Perk and her husband Scott Perk were eagerly awaiting the arrival of their first child. Meg, who was eight and a half months pregnant and had been, according to her husband, dealing with a deep depression that had been lasting a few days by this point. Meg had awoken on the morning of March 18th not feeling well. And on top of not feeling well, the couple had fought. Scott then made Meg a doctor's appointment, and on that day, he drew himself a bath. I just wanted to stop for a second because you're pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) And I just wanted to ask you, if you're having a rough day and you're not feeling so great, does your husband make himself a bath to come down? (laughs) Uh, No, I've never had my husband make a bath for himself. Um, I take baths, but... No. Well, you know, maybe it's something you should consider next time you're I've, feeling I've great. recommended it to him, but he doesn't <laughs> listen to me. So Next time you feel bad, I think. Tristan I'll just draw him a bath. bath. Yeah, I'll, exactly. I'll show him how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> well, regardless, Scott had drawn himself a bath to relax a little after a rough morning. At some point during the bath, Scott said he watched his wife walk past the bathroom door. After not hearing anything for four or five minutes, according to Scott, he got out of the bathtub to check on Meg. To Scott's horror, he found what was any husband's worst nightmare. Meg had attempted to take her own life by using a rope to hang herself from the second-story banister. The panicked husband placed a 911 call at 11.05 and tried to explain the situation to the dispatcher. Scott explained uh, that when he got out of the bath, he had found Meg hanging and had rushed to cut her down with a steak knife and had immediately started performing life-saving measures on her. When EMS arrived, Meg was laying at the base of the stairs, which to me, um, I when I heard that, I just thought instead of pulling her over the second story banister and cutting her down, he had just kind of cut the rope and she had fallen to the base of the stairs. But right? like this is upstairs, right? So it was the second story that she had hung herself. Where from. did he get the steak knife from? Did he go all the way downstairs and grab a steak knife? <laughs> That's actually a valid question. But. I to me when he, they said they found her at the base of the stair, I was like, did this man just allow his pregnant wife to fall that whole story to the ground? But I wasn't able to find any pictures or anything that said that that's what happened. But to me, finding her at the base of the stair, there was really yeah no other yeah. explanation. But uh, when the EMS got there, they were actually able to find a small pulse, and they rushed Meg to the nearest hospital. Sadly, though, within 24 hours, Meg and her baby, who her family had named David Christopher Perk, were pronounced dead. Fast forward to 2009. Scott Perk had remarried. He and his new wife, Tammy, had a teenage daughter and son and were living roughly about 15 minutes away from the home that he once shared with Meg in a city in Arizona called Stowe. Sadly for Scott, tragedies were still coming his way. 
On a cold Monday morning in March of 2009, Scott Perk's 16-year-old daughter had called 911 to request an emergency vehicle to the family's home. Her father, Scott, then took the phone. He stated that in the middle of the night, they had been woken up by what sounded like an explosion. Firefighters were sent to the Uniondale Avenue home. When they arrived, the smell of gasoline was undeniable, and it was described that natural gas had been roaring out of the meter. It looked like somebody had taken a pipe wrench and disconnected the gas line, and that gasoline had been poured directly onto the meter and it had been let into the house. This was a very clear case of arson. And this is where the hero of our story comes in. At around 3 a.m., Detective Ken Mifflin arrived on the site of the Perk family home and immediately set off to speak with the father of the house, Scott Perk. The family had taken shelter at a nearby neighbor's home. Detective Mifflin asked Scott to join him in his patrol car so that they could ask him a couple of questions. The questioning started off as routine as usual, but when Detective Mifflin asked what Scott and his family had been doing in the hours prior to the fire, he was surprised by the answer he received. Scott had told him that he and his wife were swingers, and the night before, Tammy had actually been on a date with their son's martial arts instructor. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, he stated that Tammy had gotten in around 1 a.m. and that she had brought Scott the leftovers from her date. Yeah. Thanks, over. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, nothing shows love like bringing your husband the orange chicken from the date that you had just been on. I think my husband would appreciate that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Scott said Tammy had kissed him goodnight as one does, and then gone to bed. Scott said he had eaten the leftovers, and then he too had gone to bed. So the family had all been fast asleep when they were jolted awake by the explosion. And then Scott just kept on talking. He told Mifflin that he had recently lost his job and was finding himself getting further and further into debt. But, he stated, as luck would have it, he had just taken a super recent video of all the valuable items that he had at the home. When asked how recent Scott had taken this video, he advised the detective that it had only been a few days. So now he was here, his house was burning down, and it was a good thing that he took that video because his homeowner's insurance would be paying out and he'd be able to clear up most of that debt that he had occurred. He sounds like a genius. He's actually <laughs> very lucky, I would say. <laughs> All of these revelations were making Detective Mifflin very interested in Scott, what Scott may have had to say next. So he just kept listening. Scott told him, though, that he was no stranger to bad luck. As a matter of fact, back in 1985, Scott had suffered the most devastating blow when his pregnant wife had taken her own life. Detective Mifflin could not believe what he was hearing. And I have to hope that Mifflin was already working an overnight shift and that this was somewhere in the middle of his shift, because if it was like he started at 3 a.m. and he's just got his morning coffee in and then he has to listen to this guy. Uh, I can't imagine what that day would have been like. <laughs> that would have woke you up, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and believe it or not, Scott was not done yet. After the deaths of Meg and their unborn child, Scott did not know how to cope with the grief. So he did what any normal person would do when they were trying to channel their emotions, and he became a ninja burglar. <laughs> what? What's a ninja burglar? You're about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> he was simply so grief-stricken that he had resorted to a life of crime, as one does. He disclosed that before being caught in May of 1986, he would dress all in black, head to toe. He would carry nunchucks and throwing stars, and he would break into homes, usually those of sing single females, and he would rob them of their valuables and would usually steal a single pair of their underpants. 
Wait, is he he's telling the detective all this? He's or? telling the detective as his house is burning to the ground. He is telling the detective about the underpants. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Clearly, he did end up getting caught and had been charged with 10 burglaries and four break and enters. He had pled no contest, which basically means that you accept the conviction, but you don't admit it. Okay. Okay. Scott was given 10 to 25 years, but he was paroled after eight. Good behavior. Wow. Detective well, he Mifflin. Honest, so. Well, he sounds he's obviously very honest. <laughs> Detective Mifflin at this point was just trying to process all of this information that was being hurled at him by Scott. Now that Scott had finished talking, the two men exited the parole car. It was then that the detective noticed that the family van had been parked at the very end of the driveway in the corner furthest away from the home. Upon inspection, Mifflin had noticed that the van was jam-packed. Scott told him that he and his son were planning on taking a road trip to North Carolina. But as the detective examined the van's contents, he began noticing that the things that were loaded in the van did not seem like typical things that you would bring on a road trip, but more so things that held sentimental value that you wouldn't be able to replace so easily, such as old family photo albums and Scott's grandma's cookbook. So he's honest and he's sentimental. He sounds like a great guy, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I go anywhere, I love to have a good family photo album with me because you never know. You never know. Exactly. <laughs> uh, the once extremely chatty Scott had no reasonable explanation for these items and he panicked and immediately fell silent. A few days after the fire, Fire Chief Arson Investigator Jim Liddell arrived back from his vacation. He and Detective Mifflin had a lot to talk about. Together, they listened to the 911 call that Scott had placed on the night of the fire. During a silence on the call, you can clearly hear Scott whispering to someone, Oh God, you forgot the ferret. To both Mifflin and Liddell, (laughs) this sounded like an oversight and a plan that had been made. They forgot the ferret. How do you forget the ferret? I mean, how does a sentimental guy like that forget his ferret? He had to get the ferret. Grandma's old recipes came first. Those pierogies aren't going to make themselves. <laughs> um, it sounded as if when getting everything out of the house before setting the fire, they had forgotten to get their family pet to safety. Liddell was sold on Scott being an arson suspect, but Mifflin saw something more. As tough as it was going to be, Detective Mifflin really felt as if Scott had played more of a role in the death of his first wife than he was admitting to. So with that, Liddell took on the lead for the arson case and Mifflin took on the lead for the closed case of Meg Perk. Clearly, this was not going to be a walk in the park for Detective Mifflin. That's why he's a hero. Remember I said this? Yeah, Yeah. he sounds like a hero. He's definitely a hero. So many people would have not wanted to revisit Meg's case. It was closed. It was 24 years old at the time, and it was in a different county. It was ruled a suicide, so there was not very much evidence at all. This was nearly impossible. He contacted the police department that had the jurisdiction over Meg's case, and the Akron police were happy to help. They sent over their original reports. In the report, it did state that the Akron police had their doubts, but were unable to prove that it was anything other than a suicide. Detective Mifflin noticed that on the autopsy photos, the marks around Meg's neck did not look consistent with a rope, but more so looked like a belt. To Mifflin, he could even see what appeared to be stitching in the belt in some of Meg's bruises. Detective Mifflin immersed himself in the case, but time was not on his side until March 27th of 2010. Amy Silvaggio received a call at her boyfriend's house that her apartment was on fire. She was renting a duplex, 
She lived in one side of the home and an elderly female rented out the other side. When the fire department arrived, they found themselves in a very familiar scenario. The gas meter had been tampered with and there was the clear smell of gasoline that led to it. This fire looked identical to the one that happened at the Perks house almost exactly one year ago. But Scott Perk lived all the way on the other side of town, so it clearly had nothing to do with him, right? This simply had to be the work of an arsonist that has now committed a second identical arson. And it was in no way connected to Scott. So now they could leave him alone and get back to looking for the arsonist. Well, Mifflin and Liddell were not so sure. In the early morning hours on March 27th, they arrived at the parking lot of the apartment complex where Scott and his family had been living. This particular morning was a chilly one, minus 5 degrees Celsius or 23 degrees Fahrenheit. Every single car in the lot was covered in frost with ice on the windshield, except for one. Scott Perks, which was warm to the touch. Mifflin- and it had all of his sentimental stuff in the story. <laughs> Just in case. He always has the cookbook. You never know. You just never never know. know. (laughs) Mifflin and Liddell knocked on the door, and to their surprise, right at the front entrance to Scott's apartment was a gas can and a pair of men's boots covered in fresh mud. After this, Mifflin was more sure than ever that Scott had had something to do with Meg's death. However circumstantial the evidence may have been, it was clear to him that Scott had torched his own home for the insurance money and had set a fire to this house across town to eliminate himself as a suspect. The elderly woman that rented out the other half of the duplex had been home at the time of the fire. So that showed the detective just how much Scott Perk valued human life. This was enough for Mifflin to officially start looking into the death of Meg Perk. He walked into the office of Summit County Prosecutor Sherry Bevan Walsh and asked her for assistance in getting permission to exhume and re-examine the body of Meg. The evidence he was able to provide as proof that the body needed to be exhumed was next to none. He had some old autopsy photos that he had found to be unsupportive of suicide, and he had his own theory, but that's all he had. Mifflin had gone to speak with Meg's mom in hopes that she would agree to the exhumation of her daughter and grandson's bones as they were buried together, baby David in his mother's arms. Right? That's so sad. I know. To his surprise, she agreed. Meg's mom had never believed the suicide theory in the first place. Meg was happy. She had written a letter to her grandmother days before her death celebrating. She was telling her grandmother how excited she was to be a mom. And she was excited for her grandmother to become a great grandmother. She had suffered from depression in the past and years before her death had even written poetry in which a female character in her poem had taken her own life. Scott had used this poem as proof that it was a clear cut suicide. In August of 2011, Scott Perk was indicted for both arsons. And days after, they had Scott Perk in custody. And apparently, they were not a second too soon. Police cruisers blocked in Scott's vehicle as he pulled into the parking lot. His van was packed. (laughs) With sentimental stuff, With sentimental stuff. He also had a cooler loaded up with drinks. uh, And on his passenger seat was his cell phone, which had the battery removed, likely in an attempt to uh, prevent anybody from tracking him. Police believe that Scott had been pulling in one last time to retrieve a few of his la- er, a few of his belongings and would have been skipping town after that. Scott's wife Tammy was also arrested in connection with the two fires, but she was able to plead guilty to minor charges and was only given one year probation. On September 21st of 2011, Detective Mifflin was granted a court order to exhume the body of Meg Perk. Mifflin said when he advised Scott of the court order, he watched all of the color leave his face. 
Dr. Dorothy Dean was a medical examiner who performed the second autopsy on Meg. And according to her, the embalming job that had been, un- been done in the first place was nearly perfect. It made her job a lot easier. Nice. Yeah. Dr. Dean agreed with doc- Detective Mifflin that the marking on Meg's neck was n- not consistent with a rope, but with a belt. She ruled her death a ligature strangulation and pronounced her death a homicide, not a suicide. January 24th of 2013, Scott pled guilty to both arsons and received 28 years in prison. A year later, on January 27th of 2014, Scott Perk was indicted in the murder of Meg Perk and tampering with evidence, to which Scott pled not guilty. The prosecution had tried multiple times to recreate the markings on Meg's neck using a rope and modeling clay, but were unable to achieve similar markings. However, when using a belt, the markings were exact. The prosecution also provided evidence that investigators had tried to replicate the crime scene using the banister in a home nearly identical and a few doors down from the home that Megan uh, Scott Perk had lived in. They hung a dummy that was the same weight and height as Meg at the time of her death from the soft pine banister. And when they did this, the results showed huge gouges in the banister's wood. According to maintenance records, the banister at the Perk home had never been repaired or replaced and still appeared to be without any damages. During closing arguments, prosecution drove home the fact that the bruising on Meg's neck went the wrong way. If Meg had, in fact, hung herself, she would have an upside-down V along the back of her neck that pulled up. But instead, the bruises went down the back of Meg's neck. And that, along with the knee-sized bruise and the small of her back, painted a pretty clear picture of murder. Mm -hmm. Scott Perk had strangled his pregnant wife while she lay face down and struggled for her life and the life of her unborn child. What a piece of crap. Definitely. And I thought he was so sentimental. He He's not the great guy that we once thought he was, no. for sure. The jury deliberated for four hours before returning a guilty verdict. Scott Perk was sentenced to 15 years to life to run consecutively with his arson charges. In case you're unclear what consecutively means, it means that once his 28 years for the arson charges are up, then he starts serving these new... A lot of times they do it concurrently, which means you can serve for the murder and the arson at the same time and you get out sooner. Luckily, in this case, that's not what's going to happen to Scott. Good. So Scott Perk will not even be eligible for parole until February of 2050 when he will be 88 years old. Hero, Ken Mifflin, visited Meg's grave a short time after the verdict to share the good news with her. And he retired from the Stowe Police Department on August 7th of 2020 with a job well done. Definitely. And that is a sad story of Meg Perk, but also the awesome detective who could have taken the easy road but chose to be on the right side of history, Ken Mifflin. Way to go, Ken. (laughs) I always wonder, like, with these kind of cases is, like, how does the first investigation on this girl's supposed suicide, like, how do they just overlook so much stuff? I think, you know, when he had these poems that she had written and she had a history of depression. And I think that him making that doctor's appointment kind of fed into his story because she was depressed. They were fighting. But I feel like you would examine like how she's strangled. Why is she at the bottom of the stairs? Where'd you get a steak knife from upstairs? You know, right. Who keeps a steak knife? Not many people. No, but you know, it was 1986. I guess times were different. Kids were running wild in the streets. You weren't even people were more naive, except for Ken Mifflin. He wasn't. No. And you don't know because you weren't even around in 1986. I guess not. Yeah. I was too. So I have a pretty good (laughs) remembrance of the time. (laughs) But the bottom line is Ken Ken Mifflin here was our hero. Yeah. And uh, yeah. R.I.P. Meg. 
Yeah, that's that sucks. It's sad that she was pregnant. Yes, I'd be like, I'm pretty sad about the ferret too. I'm you know, as lie. I was writing this, yeah, <laughs> R.I.P. Ferret. <laughs> as I was writing this, I was like, why am I telling this to my pregnant sister? <laughs> this is a horror. And then I, I got to the part where she was holding the baby, and I was like, good grief, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was sad. Don't worry. I'm not feeling hormonal right now. So okay. Well, we're good. <laughs> Kristen will just have to deal with you later, I guess. Yeah. yeah. He'll consult me. It's okay. He'll draw me a bath or maybe himself a bath. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Look at him. He's like, that does sound great. <laughs> <laughs> I better give this bath thing a try, you know? <laughs> okay. So that was our first episode of Everything Scary. <laughs> Your headset looks a little small. It looks like it's going to pop off like a rubber band right now. I'm still learning how to wear a headset, so. <laughs> so are, are you feeling a little bit more at ease or? Uh, yeah, it's going to take a little bit of time to work into this, I think, but it's, it's fun so far. You're so. also not pregnant, not able to drink wine, so I understand. Yeah, if I could have some vodka right now. That you would can't. Be nice. You can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> My baby doesn't like vodka, just so everyone knows. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess we'll wrap up this episode, our first episode, which was Scott Perk and the sad tale of Meg Perk and Ken Mifflin. The ferret. My dreamboat. Oh, do you want to see a picture of Ken Mifflin? Is he good looking? He's, I mean, he's, because of what he's done. Because he's a hero, he's good looking. Because of what he's done, he is definitely a good looking man. what's on the inside that counts, and he's got a good brain, it sounds like. So, and, and to me, I feel like he looks like a good person. So this is Ken Mifflin. Oh, yeah. He kind of looks like Uncle Rick. <laughs> I mean, all right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you to anybody who tuned in this long. And uh, we're going to see you on the next episode. We have, uh, I have clearly bitten off more than I can chew uh, with the Jody Arias case next, which is a lot of information. So hang tight and hopefully we'll see you there. Bye. Bye. <laughs>